The second reading today is taken from Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 to 13. Revelation 3, 7 to 13. To the visitors and those who are new to the Bible, this is found in your pew Bible, pages 1288 and 1289. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Churches, praise be to God. Thank you, uh, Yui, for reading that uh, passage of scripture for us this morning. So uh, let's come to our God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning, uh, that you would strengthen us in you, help us, Lord, as a church to learn from this word that we will be a church that will seek always the opportunities that come our way. Lord, I pray that your spirit will speak and do his work through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, today, this morning, if you're a visitor here, or if you're a regular as well, you know that we've been following a series on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We have seven wonderful messages to every church of every age, and therefore it applies to every church, whatever year, whatever age we may live in, and they are not in some chronological order. So far, we have looked at the following churches. Ephesus, the church that lost its first love, a church that had everything going, but Jesus says, you have lost your first love. You have lost your first love for me. Secondly, we saw this church in Smyrna, the suffering church, the, the, the church that struggled along the way. Then the church in Pergamum or Pergamos, the compromising church. And then the church in Thyatira, the tolerant church, where it had Jezebel and the Nicolaitans and the church that tolerated false teaching. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Sardis, the church which was the dying church, 
And I titled that message, Wake Up Church. Wake up because you are dying. And so uh, we have looked at these churches and this morning uh, we're going to look at the sixth letter, which is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And I want to ask you to keep your Bibles open. Um, if you have your Bibles on your phones, that's okay, so long as you're not texting or something like that. <laughs> we know what's happening there, okay? I've got a system here that tells me they're texting. No, it, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> okay? And so this morning, we are going to look at the sixth letter, which is a letter to the church in Philadelphia. And we're going to look at uh, verses 7 and 8. I broke, divided this into two sections, so next week we'll look at the next section as we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So we'll look at verses 7 and 8. This morning, I've titled the message, The Church with an Open Door. And before we look at this passage, let me give you some background information uh, to the church in Philadelphia. We've been looking, as I said, and this is a, a kind of a map that you might see where these churches were, were located. Um, so the, the, the guy who would take this letter would go from one place to another uh, and end up uh, at Laodicea. So to the church in Philadelphia, some, some background to this city. Now John has, has been there and uh, he's, he's, he's visited the place. So he knows uh, uh, this area better than what I do. I haven't been there as yet. Hopefully you might, we can take an offering or something and send me. This will be fine. The Philadelphia is located uh, about 30 miles or maybe 50 kilometers southeast of Sardis. It was uh, the, the next town where, that the postman would reach on his circular tour. Uh, of rounds of the seven churches. The city was founded by, in, in 140 BC by a guy by the name of Athelus, the second whose surname apparently was Philadelphus. And Athelus had a brother named Eumenes, and out of, his, out of love for his brother, he called the city Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love. And that's how this, this, name, this, this city was named. And the area was, was dangerously uh, volcanic. And the ancient uh, historian Starbo called Philadelphia a city full of earthquakes. So the people lived in fear of earthquakes. And in AD 17, a powerful earthquake destroyed 12 cities in the area, including both Sardis and Philadelphia. And therefore, some citizens refused to go back into the city, and they lived in the surrounding areas. Well, you can't blame them, can you? They, wanted, they didn't want to go into the city. And so it is said that the area surrounding Philadelphia was volcanic and was known as the burnt land, where volcanic ash fell on it, making the land fertile, and in particular was helpful for the vineyards, and hence Philadelphia became well known for its fine wines. Although affected by massive earthquakes, the people rebuilt the city on a number of occasions, and it would have been obviously rebuilt by the time John wrote this letter in 96 AD. So the city was also an open door for trade and commerce, and it was strategically placed along a well-traveled highway that linked the east that's Asia with, West, with, uh, with the West, with Europe. And so the city became known as the gateway to the East due to its geographic location. And this city was a city known also as an open door city. 
through which the Greek culture and language and manner of life began to be spread to the East. And so in that sense, Philadelphia became known as the missionary city, not to promote the gospel, but to promote Greek culture. It had an open door to promote the Greek culture. Now what about the church? We don't know when the church was founded or who was instrumental in starting this church. It's very possible that due to the preaching of the gospel in Ephesus by Paul, by, that God's word may be have, have spread in that area and Philadelphia was the church that was planted. Whatever the circumstances, Jesus planted the church in Philadelphia. And so this letter is written to this church. There is no rebuke in this letter. It's all encouragement and strength given to this church. And so this morning, as we look at verses 7 and 8, we're going to look at the encouragement and uh, the opportunity. Two things this morning. The encouragement to the church. Look at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One. The true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Well, friends, we see three things about Jesus here in this text. Firstly, we see the holiness of Jesus. Jesus says that he is the holy one. And by doing so, it's a reference to God himself who is holy. Remember Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. That is who our God is. When we speak about God, when we speak about the theology of God, we need to remember and to remind ourselves that the God we worship, the God who has revealed himself, is called Holy, Holy, Holy. And Jesus now comes, and we, let, let's come to the New, uh, the New Testament. And particularly to the Gospel of Mark, I just I want to give you a New Testament perspective of this as well. The Gospel of Mark, where we read this amazing encounter of Jesus with a man with an unclean spirit. And notice what takes place. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia that he is the Holy One. And in doing so, Jesus equates himself with God. That is, he is God. Not a lesser God. He is holy. He is not a lesser God, but he is God himself. The second person of the Trinity right into this church and reminded them of who he is. What an encouragement to us this morning. What an encouragement to that church. When Jesus says, I am the Holy One. I am writing to you. I am speaking to you. This is, this is God speaking to you. 
as his son. Do we stand in awe before Jesus? Do you see the majesty of our Savior? The mighty Christ. This amazing Savior. This dazzling Savior Jesus. Who is holy. Not only that. Look at the text. It's also true. That's what we see here, isn't it? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits. Um, sorry, the, these are the words of him who, who is holy and true. See, the word true means genuine, real, or authentic. It is opposite to what is fictitious, counterfeit, fake, or imaginary. Now, let me tell you a story what happened. This is true. Last week, you know, every Monday, Rose and myself, we disappear from our home. We go somewhere, we sit down, we talk, we have coffee together. And uh, I don't usually go to the coffee shop that she goes because that coffee, to me, is not real coffee, but doesn't so, uh, so the coffee separates us for a moment, doesn't matter. <laughs> but I go, I go and get my coffee from a particular place. If I go somewhere else, I'll go find a nice coffee shop. Anyway, bottom line is, I went to this coffee shop, pulled out $10, I Gave the lady $10. I said, can I have a, a medium-sized latte? Is your coffee good? Ah, oh, yes, sir, it's quite good. So I took the money. Now I'm standing there. There's a queue behind me. And lo and behold, you know what's happening? They're taking the $10. And they're examining this $10. I asked the lady, what's going on? No, we've been receiving some fake notes. And so they're examining this $10 under the light, bringing something out. And I'm standing there, and people are in the queue, and I'm thinking, like, man, what's going on here? Right? So they're looking to see whether the $10 that I gave them was fake, and whether I'm the guy who's making these fake notes. So in the meantime, I can see Rose, she's seated on the other side. She's, she's having her coffee. And she's, what's happening to me? I'm trying to signal. doesn't matter. The point is, I said to the lady, we said, oh, your, your note is authentic, sir. That's fine. I said, thank you. Can I have my money back? I took the $10. I went to the next shop right opposite. I gave the $10. He gave me a coffee. I took it past. And I didn't actually do that, no. The point is, the point is, they were wanting to see whether that $10 note was authentic. Right? What about when we think about Jesus? You see, he's saying he is true. He's not fake. He's not fictitious. He's not a counterfeit savior here. He is the true one. He is the, the, he is the, 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 the God who has revealed himself in truth. He is not a false savior. And Jesus says that he is true. And he is the authentic one. He is the true one. He is the reliable one. He is the genuine one. He is not a manufactured one. He is one that we can put our faith and trust in Jesus because he is true. He is true to his own promises. He is holy and true. And the fact is that holy and true are divine attributes. We see that in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So Jesus is holy and he is true. And then we see this as well. We see the power of Jesus, who has the key to, of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now what does that mean? This is, I believe, a direct reference to his messianic lineage. 
Let me say, tell you this. King Hezekiah, I've got to get back into the Old Testament on this. King Hezekiah had a faithful steward whose name was called Eliakim. We read this in Isaiah chapter 22. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Ilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. <laughs> Alright? So he's taking us right back, right back into the Old Testament. Now, who was this guy Eliakim? He's identified as the Lord's servant. He was the head steward of the king. And Eliakim received royal emblems of authority. He received a robe with a sash and the key of David's dynasty on his shoulder. A position of authority and power. And he ruled over his entire house. And he alone could admit anyone into the presence of the king. And so God had laid the key on the, to the palace on the shoulder of Eliakim. He was granted authority to administer the keys of access to David's house. And now what Isaiah prophesied regarding Eliakim, we need to get this, friends, foreshadowed, foreshadowed Jesus Christ, who has absolute authority over the key to the household of God and the eternal kingdom. And Jesus is saying here, I am greater than Eliakim. I have absolute power as to who can enter my kingdom. And Jesus says here that he has the key of David, which is the highest authority in heaven and on earth. And no one, whether Jew or Gentile, can enter God's kingdom or take his place among the people of God unless Christ grants him access or entrance because he holds the key. What, a, what an encouragement, isn't it? With these words of remarkable self-identification ringing in their ears, the letter turns to the promise that Jesus extends now to this church in Philadelphia by saying, I know your works. There's a prototype Eliakim, but now I am the absolute ruler of heaven and earth. Matthew 28, the passage that we read. He opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And the symbolism is so powerful. He is saying, I am the one who has this authority and he alone has the ability to open the kingdom of God to you. He alone has the authority to open the door to let anyone into the kingdom by his grace. No one comes to the Father except through, uh, through him. He has the key to life. He has the key to abundant life, and he has the key to eternal life. What a thing. What a blessing. Has your heart been unlocked by Jesus? Has he opened your heart this morning? Has he, by his Spirit, opened the, the, the door and come in? Has he unlocked a stubborn heart? And Jesus can do that. He can convert 
the most stubborn person. Can he not? Well, I won't be standing here. I'm not saying, you know, I won't be here if he didn't unlock my heart. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, every time I mouth this pulpit, I'm, I stand in absolute awe and reverence before God because I am absolutely amazed. I still cannot, I've said this many times, cannot and still cannot comprehend the depth of God's grace to a sinner like me. That he's unlocked the heart. He has the key to eternal life. And, he, and, and what he opens, no one can shut. And he says to this church, I have the key. It's in my hands. And I will open those. And I will shut those. I will bring people into my kingdom. And I will keep people out of that kingdom. It's in his hands. Do you know this Jesus this morning? Do you know his power? Do you know his grace? Do you know his strength in your life? And so the recipients to this letter are assured at the outset that Jesus is the holy, true and powerful Messiah who has the key of David right back into the Old Testament who opens and no one will shut. And I believe the reference here to that no one will, uh, who opens and no one will shut and so forth, I believe it's a reference to the admission to the city of David, the heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal city of God. The, the rest of the letter speaks of Jerusalem. I'll touch on that next week. And so the admission to the heavenly city is only by Jesus. He alone gives or withholds. And every funeral service, when I conduct a funeral service as a minister, you know, for a Christian funeral, it makes a massive difference. I can tell you that. And I've officiated at non-Christian funerals, and you know and you sense a sense of hopelessness. <laughs> but with a Christian funeral, we know that that person is in the heavenly Jerusalem, in God's city, because Christ has opened and unlocked the door of that person's heart and brought that person safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gently, gentle breast. There will I lay down with Jesus. In his presence. What a glorious message of hope. Do you rejoice in that this morning? That God has given us life. And so. Admission. Wow. What a comfort to the believer. And what a comfort to this church. And Jesus says to this church. In verse 8. The opportunity is yours now. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Jesus says. I know it. He's omniscient. Behold. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look at this, friends. Look, look at this text. He knows. And he says, behold. The word behold in the Greek is, the word means to look. Look, look, look. It's like uh, when you're going somewhere and you've seen something, and you say to somebody next to you, look, look. See, or you've got a child and, 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 and you want to show your child something. Look, son, look, daughter, look. Or if you want your child to, to give attention to yourself when you're talking, and because they are on the other side and you're talking this way, look at me. Look. And the word here is look, behold, see, 
See for yourself, he says. I have given you an open door. It means, my dear friends, now there are different, uh, in, could be different views on this, and I don't plan to go into all of that. I think it is helpful to refer to the other passages in the Bible to help us understand what this door means, what this open door is. Very quickly, Acts chapter 14, 27, Paul and Barnabas report that they had a wonderful opportunity for the gospel because God had opened the door. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul says, God also gave us an open door. Colossians 4, 3, pray for an open door, Paul says. So the open door here is a reference, I believe, for the opportunity to share the good news. The church is to be a missional church. Where does evangelism fit in to the life of this church? Are we serious about it? Are we? Is evangelism somewhere way, way down the priorities of our church? Do we take the need to share the gospel with our friends, with our family, with our work colleagues, with our school friends, uni friends, our neighbors? Friends, think about it. How many doors have God opened for you? Has he? You think about that. I was reading this past week, actually I was meeting with the students and we read the, the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, chapter 4 on conversion. And you know how God uses simple circumstances to bring people to faith. Think about John, uh, John Bunyan and his conversion. You know what happened to John Bunyan? He was walking around and he saw two women. Two women, he calls them the washerwomen. That is, they brought their clothes to do some washing. And the two women were talking about faith and about God and about Jesus. And John Bunyan overheard this conversation. And what happened to John Bunyan? He thought about those things. And later God used the conversation of those two women to bring him to faith. Think about Charles Spurgeon. What happened to Charles Spurgeon? Charles Spurgeon, you know what happened to him? There was a storm outside. Uh, we, we had that storm, didn't we, this morning? Huh? We were clapping and all that kind of stuff. A storm. A massive storm outside. And so Charles Spurgeon, he went to find shelter in a church. And that day, for some reason, the minister didn't come. God doesn't need ministers sometimes. So a deacon got up, and the deacon started to preach. And the deacon looked at this young man, You need Christ! You need Christ! That was it. <laughs> uh, in his broken way, it is said that this deacon spoke. And God used the deacon to preach, and Charles Spurgeon was converted. What an amazing story is that. Tells us all preachers, isn't it? Don't think that we are big guys, right? It's not about who we are. I don't need to add power into God's word. God's word is living and dynamic. I can jump up and down this pulpit and do nothing. Now that's a different thing about styles. But the issue is how you preach. This is God's word and it can bring conversions. Think about Martin Luther and his amazing conversion. Oh, there's another guy called William Perkins. William Perkins is one of the great Puritan theologians. You know what happened to William Perkins? He was walking along the road. And there was a mother who was talking to, his, uh, to, to, her, to her son and said, Don't have a loose tongue. You'll be like William Perkins. And William Perkins was just going by. (laughs) And William Perkins was known to be a drunkard. 
and a foul-mouthed guy. Imagine that. He's walking by and the mother is saying to him, do not talk like that with your tongue because you'll be like William Perkins. William Perkins goes along and he thinks about that and somehow in God's providence, William Perkins is brought to faith from a simple <laughs> conversation like that. You see what I'm saying? How God can use people and circumstances gives us open doors. I was talking to somebody only day before. And I said to this person, I said, ah, a complete stranger, I've never met him, first time I met him. And I said, look, you know, aren't we driven by consumerism? And this guy looked at me and said, why do you say that? I said, you know, what we have, we can't take when we die, can we? He looked at me and said, oh, that is so true, that is so true, Chris. We bring nothing and we, we actually can't take anything. And I hope I have an opportunity, I'm hoping to meet up with him this week, and to have a further the conversation about the gospel. You see, pray that God brings you simple opportunities. We don't need to go and look for big opportunities, the simple daily opportunities that He brings our way, right? In your workplace, in your, in your, in your uni, wherever God has placed you in this church, think about the open doors that God has given to us here at St. Stephen's. I, I put a list here. Think about it. Our ESL class, every Wednesday, apart from our school holidays, what an opportunity. 15, 16 people come along to those classes. What an opportunity of open door, right? Yeah? You praying for that work? Are you willing to come and say, look, what can I do? If I can do something, help me to help that ministry? Well, I can pray. Pray and pray. We have the outreach in Box Hill on a regular basis. We are talking to people there on, on, in the Box Hill shopping center. And you know what a busy place that is. People are going about and I can't speak Chinese. I want to learn Chinese. Because if I go to Box Hill, I need to know something of Chinese. So I will start Ni Hao Ma or something. And they are like, wow, what's going on here? Right? So anyway, what, what about our women's lunch that's coming up next week? It's not just about the food, even though the food is a great thing and I know women will enjoy that. But it's about our outreach, isn't it? Bring your non-Christian friends as, as Dorcas Dennis speaks. Hopefully the gospel will be preached there. The monthly coffee house. Every, every uh, month we have a coffee house. It's not an in-house place that we can sit down and have a nice latte, be served, cafes, style stuff. And, wow, it's great. It's an opportunity for us to invite our friends. What about the, the, the worship services on Sundays? Morning and evening services. Have you invited your friends? Hey, come along to church. Come along. Come and, hear, come and, and join with us. You know, come and hear what God is doing. Inviting your friends along. Might be a big step to do that. What about our youth and young adults and kids ministry? What an open door God has given to us. The holiday club program, friends. God give, has given us open doors at St. Stephen's. We don't have that in other countries. But he has opened many doors for us in Australia. Has he not? <laughs> are we using it? Am I using it? And we can keep going. How can we use these open doors to share Christ. Friend, friends, pray for conversions. That is one thing that I want to encourage you to do from this sermon. At least start praying for conversions, right? Pray that God will bring one person, one person to your mind. And you start praying for that person. And you just don't know when God will unlock the key to the heart. You just don't know. Think of... Uh, John Newton, the guy who penned Amazing Grace. You know, 
he called himself a wild beast. I'm a beast of a guy. He did everything possible, but his mother, a godly mother, you know what the mother was doing? Praying, praying, and praying. And one day, John Newton came to faith. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, I'm found. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound, isn't it? That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Friends, notice further the little strength. Let's look at this text here. Notice what Jesus says to this church. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Little strength. I looked at this, friends. You know, Jesus is aware that the church in Philadelphia, when viewed from the point of view of numbers or social uh, prestige, was a church with little power. I mean, are we also not in the same situation? (laughs) They had only little strength in themselves. In themselves, they are weak. But in Jesus, we are Strong. Alright? I'm reminded of the words of Jesus to the Apostle Paul. But he said to me, this is the Lord speaking to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This last week, as I was preparing this, uh, this, this, uh, this message, I, I, I played this, uh, this wonderful song, Let the weak say I'm strong. You know that one? Let the weak say I'm strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Let the blind say I can see. It's what the Lord has done in me. Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lamb that was slain. Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus died and rose again. Little strength. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever felt weak? Have you? <laughs> Every Sunday, you know, even this morning, I, I was praying this early, early, I was this morning praying, Lord, I am weak. I am nothing. Absolutely weak, Lord. I can't stand before your people in my own strength. It doesn't work. I am so weak. I need your strength. Every day. You know, we are weak friends in ourselves, but we have a mighty Lord who stands behind us, don't we? You might look at your life and say, I'm a weak person. Of course, we are humbled by His grace, empowered by His Spirit. And God is able to take a weak and a broken church that has humbled themselves before Him and use that church in all His power. You know, we have a mighty power behind us, yes? Agreed? We have a mighty power in us through the Holy Spirit and a mighty power of Christ that stands behind us and says, keep on going. Persevere. I told you what happened to me last week. I went to the kids' church. I had no idea. I had no idea that I would be asked to do 20 push-ups. I mean, <laughs> that is like, whoa. And I had to compete with a young, young guy, Matt Darun. And so he's going, Max is going, pumping, boom, 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 boom. And I must have... 
no, I'm, I'm going along. <laughs> and the kids are going, yay, come on, Chris, come on. As I heard that, you know, I kept on going. Even though after 20 years, nearly like, Whoa. The encouragement that people give to us as we persevere. And Christ is saying to this church, you are weak, you have little strength, but you trust in me, the Holy One, the True One, the One is all power, and I stand behind you, and I open doors, and no one can shut. Go in my name. The Great Commission. What a blessing. And look at this church. They, you have kept my word, yet this church had kept Christ's word. They had trusted his word. They were faithful to the word of God. And they did not deny his name. They did not deny the name. I was reading uh, the book this past week. I don't know whether you've come across the book. It's called The Little Church. Maybe some of you have read it by Gary Gilly. And he makes some helpful comments about, on, on evangelism. In fact, three points. Let me very quickly share this. He says this, those who are convinced that the Bible is the written word of God can have complete confidence in the truth it reveals. God's truth is unique. And he says that no matter how feeble our evangelistic work can be, nevertheless, what we give is absolute truth. The second thing he says here is, our confidence rests not in our efforts, but ultimately in the power of God. It's a, it's a great book. <laughs> this little church. Nice title, isn't it? <laughs> this little church. And then the third point he makes is this. While the unredeemed may attempt to take the high ground on relativism, pluralism, and toleration of the ideas of others, the believers know, the believers know a secret. Within the heart of every human being is implanted knowledge of the existence of God. And so you go and you minister the gospel. <laughs> So as we conclude, this morning, let us thank the Lord for the doors that he has opened for us and continues to do so. Give thanks to him that if you are his child, that he has brought you into his kingdom, that he has unlocked your heart and made you his child. What a blessing. Eh? What a blessing to be called the child of the living God. Wow! I mean, that, I told you, I can't work that out still. <laughs> and, and if this morning you are not yet his child, I invite you to consider Jesus, that by his grace and power, that he will cause you to repent and trust in him. And finally, in conclusion, friends, pray that this church will be a missional church. That is our prayer. You can, you can ask John when we meet for our weekly meetings. We pray for you. Is a witness, and we pray that this church will be a missional church. Right? I, I'm not going to I say it respectfully and, and kindly. You know, we're not going to maintain a museum. <laughs> right? The church is not a museum, right? Or is it? Tell me, <laughs> it's not a museum. Right? The church is a missional place where we pray that Christ will use us with our little strength to reach Surrey Hills. And beyond. For whom? For Jesus. May God bless us in this mission and in this work. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you open doors. That you have given us many opportunities for ministry. Help us, Lord, as a church to be a missional church. 
Continue, Lord, to unlock hearts of people, men and women, boys and girls, that they may come to know Christ. We pray for conversions. In Jesus' name, Amen.